Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. This is, how, this is the end of the book. Like I say, if we finish tonight, great. If not, we will finish next week and we'll go from there. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, as Paul moves into the last section of his letter to the saints in Philippi, he takes some time to thank them for their financial support. But even a thank you can become a teaching opportunity. And I'll be honest with you, aren't we glad that it did? Because some of, two of our favorite verses have come out of this passage. Do you know which ones they are? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And verse 19, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Two of our most favorite passages, two of the verses that we probably all could quote, have come out of this last little section where he writes a thank you to the church there in Philippi, thanking them for their gift. But what I want to do is I want to look at this in their, these verses in their proper context so that we can actually find out there's even more to these verses than we first thought. All right. Paul, in referencing their reviving their concern for him, is just simply speaking of their sending Epaphroditus to visit and also with Epaphroditus, they sent a love offering. Again, look at verses 15 through 18. He says, you Philippians know yourselves that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and am, am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Go over to chapter 2. Let me remind you of what he had said there in chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. See, so receive him in the Lord with all joy. And honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So when he's saying, hey, guys, I, I, I rejoice greatly at you reviving your concern for me. He says, you've always been concerned, but you, now you had an opportunity to do something about it. They had sent Epaphroditus, as you know, and he'd been there for a while. And now Paul's going to send him back with this letter. Yet what came with Epaphroditus when they sent Epaphroditus to Paul? That was a question. A financial gift. 
they took a love offering and they sent that love offering to Paul. Uh, and so uh, it's interesting, though. Look at verses 10 and 11. In thanking them for their financial gift, it seems like Paul has had to deal with people questioning his motives whenever he speaks of money. So he comes across, doesn't it come across a little as defensive? Look at verses 10 and 11 again. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You indeed were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It's almost like he's saying, hey, I'm not referencing your gift because I'm in need. And there's almost a little bit of a defensive mode. And I want to just take a little bit of time here to deal with the fact that a lot of people may not know this, but Paul actually, even though he's Paul, had many people question his motives in what he did. And actually, Paul had been accused of preaching just for the money. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Well, unfortunately, there are some people that actually get very, very rich in, in the ministry. Exactly. And, and when you remember where he was... Who he was before. Who he was before. I mean, yeah. that was a place of promise. Oh, he, he used to be quite wealthy. <laughs> Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, though, verses 1 through 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, look at verses 1 through 18. Paul's defending himself here. He says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on a human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it, when it treads, out, treads out the grain. It is for ox, uh, sorry, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul is saying, hey, I don't know if you know this or not, but I have gone out of my way to make it very clear that I'm not in this for the money. I have every right to have you guys support me in what I do, but I have not taken advantage of that. And as you know, if you know anything about Paul, he spent most of his life as a tent maker. He was bivocational, if you will, just to keep people from accusing him of being in it for the money. Now, I, I'm just going to take a little quick aside here and say that 
Thank the Lord. He has blessed Just a Preacher Ministries in such a way that we get our living from people's donations and, and the, the gifts and, and speaking fees whenever. I don't mean pay speaking fees. I don't charge when I speak. But when churches take love offerings and stuff. But one of the things we have done over the years, and you're going to see this, those who go on the cruise, we have DVDs available and CDs available and books. As you know, we, we tell people what the price is for the book, but if you don't have the money, we'll give you the book. And the CDs, we never charge because I never, ever, ever, ever want to say to someone, you can't hear the Word of God unless you have enough money. So we don't charge for anything. We say, here's what the price is. If you want to pay for it, great. And if not, please take it. Because that's our attitude. We believe God will take care of us and we go out of our way to make sure. I'll be honest with you, I don't even know where we are money-wise. That's taken care of by other people in the ministry. I just want to preach. I stay away from all that kind of stuff. Yes, there is a danger. There are those who are in the ministry that are in it for the money. And they're the ones that like to flash their gold rings and fancy cars and all that kind of stuff. And there's a danger on that side for sure. But at the same time, I want to take a little bit and talk to you all because you all go to different churches. Let me tell you that for too long, the churches have prayed this kind of prayer. Lord, please send us a poor, humble preacher. You keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. And the Bible actually, let me put it to you this way, everyone knows, yet even though Paul spent most of his ministry years making tents to help support the ministry God called him to, he was very clear that churches were to financially bless those who shepherd, especially those who preach and teach. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I want you to see it for yourself. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. First Timothy 5 verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, as you've already seen him say it in Corinthians now, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And so folks, I just want to just challenge you to err on the side of being generous toward your pastors rather than on the side of being cheap. But what if he, hey, that's the Lord's responsibility to take care of him if he's getting out of hand. Because it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, when Peter writes to the elders, he says, I appeal to you elders as a fellow elder, be shepherds of God's flock, which is under your care. Not because you must, but because you're willing, not lording your authority and not being greedy for money, but being an example to the flock. The Lord will deal with those whose attitudes and their things are wrong. It is not up to you to make sure our pastor doesn't get out of control when it comes to money. Most of the churches that I deal with that go through pastor search processes actually start doing research about what the average salary might be in, for pastors and this kind of thing, about this kind of an area. And they always try to, we just want to make sure we don't, we don't want to give them too much. And we, and we might want to, want to give them too little. Let's just try to go with what the average is. Folks, the Bible doesn't say give them what the average is, does it? The Bible says be generous toward them, especially those who preach and teach. And you just leave it to the Lord as to whether or not they're going to handle that properly or not. And so I just want to say to you what Paul says to you. For anybody that says I'm in it for the money, you've got you to know me before you make that statement because I don't, I don't even know what I make. Don't worry about that kind of stuff. And you're going to see as Paul gets into that, it's even more clear as we go. But at the same time, on your side, make a mistake of being too generous toward those who are in leadership in your churches. Bless them. And God, I promise you, God will bless the church that blesses their ministers. All right. So let's keep going. In thanking them for their financial gift, though, Paul uses this opportunity to teach on contentment. Now, 
the world has a definition of contentment. I want to make sure, I'm going to lay it out for you, and you tell me whether or not you think this is the world's definition of contentment. In the world's mind, contentment comes when we have plenty of whatever it is that makes us content. Is that pretty much the world's definition? Whatever it is in their mind that makes them content, as long as they feel they have plenty of that, they feel content, correct? All right, well, keep that definition in mind, because I'm going to say something in a little bit that's going to surprise you about that definition. All right, but here's that definition again. The world's definition of contentment is when they feel like they have enough of whatever it is that makes them content. All right. <laughs> What's that? Never well, uh, well, that's actually I'm going to tell a fun little story right along that line, how they're never content. Uh, there was a story I heard about this farmer who had a piece of property and he, uh, he put a big billboard up on the side of the highway. And the billboard said this. I am looking for someone in this world who's truly content. If you're truly content, I want to give you my farm. Well, this billionaire drives down the road. He sees the signboard and he says, hey, there's nobody more content than me. I've got anything I ever want. I've got all these houses. I've got all these land and cars. I've I got everything I want. So I'm content. So he drives up to this farmer's house, knocks on the door, and the farmer says, can I help you? He said, yeah, I saw your sign. He said, I'm the one that's truly content. I'd like your farm. <laughs> the, 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 the farmer says, are you truly, truly content? The guy says, yes, I am. He goes, Farmer says, well, why do you want my farm? <laughs> if you're truly content, you wouldn't even want my farm. Paul said, though, that he's learned how to be content. Now, listen closely how I'm going to word this, because I want this to sink in. Paul said that he has learned how to be content in whatever situation he's in. Now, let that sink in for a minute. Contentment that is not ruffled by any outward, outward circumstances. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't it be nice to get to a point where it didn't matter what your bank account looked like or what the doctor said or whether or not so-and-so's, you know, said he's going to get you or whatever? Wouldn't it be cool to get to that point where it didn't, whatever's going on around you didn't ruffle your feathers, you were content? Wouldn't that be neat? Paul actually says uh, he's experienced lowness in this passage. You see he's experienced lowness and abounding. He's experienced plenty. He's experienced hunger. He's experienced abundance and need. What's the secret then, Paul? What's the secret of contentment that is not changed by your outward circumstances? The answer is in verse 13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength, through Christ who gives me strength. Now, I, here's the curveball for you. The world's definition of contentment is right. All these years you've heard the preacher talk about here's the world's definition, but it's wrong. In this instance, the world's definition of contentment is right. They've just put the wrong thing in the category of what makes them content. The Bible teaches that you will be truly content if, as a Christian, you feel you have plenty of whatever makes you content. But the thing that should make you content is your relationship with Jesus Christ. That should be what is the root of your contentment. See, all the other stuff that you could put in to make you, the people think they need to make them content. What's wrong with all the other stuff? Yeah, it passes away. It's fleeting. It's temporary. So Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. I have found that instead of looking for money, prestige, fame, climbing up the ladder. Remember, we looked at how he tried to do that, all these things. But remember, isn't that what the, uh, Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes? I tried wisdom. I tried folly. I tried building stuff. and all, I've tried all that stuff. The one thing that will make you content 
is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, here's where we're going to go. We got a problem, though. Most of us Christians struggle with contentment, don't we? Let's be honest with each other. We worry. We get anxious. We get angry. We get frustrated. Contentment is not something you see in the Christian church as a whole, is it? We don't look a whole lot different from the rest of society that's out there freaking out right now because of the economy and the elections and all this other stuff that's going on. Where is this group of people that God says, be ready to give reason for the hope that lies within you? Who's asking us? Part of the reason is this. I'm assuming everybody here knows the Lord. If you don't, I would pray you come talk to me before you leave here tonight. But I'm assuming most everybody here knows the Lord. Those of you that are here that know the Lord, is there anybody that sits around worrying about whether or not you're going to heaven when you die? How come? Because he's made a promise and you believe him and you do not worry about that anymore. Has he not also made promises about every other aspect of life? But we worry about all those other aspects. We believe that he'll get us into heaven and we don't even we don't even give it a second thought except can't wait to get there because we believe it so much. Yet in every other aspect of our life, everything else is also supposed to be rooted in Christ, walking and resting in him in his promises. That's why he's saying, don't be worried, don't be anxious. But no one's ever taught us how to rest in Christ for the rest of it. We realize we have no control whether or not we get into heaven, and it's because we think we have some say. Folks, I want to take you through a biblical quick run-through of verses you already know, but I want you to read them again as God reminding us of all along He's been saying contentment is available to everyone even after salvation, after you've been justified. You have to believe everything else I've said in the same way you believe that I'll get you to heaven. So go with me real quick to uh, Matthew chapter 6. I'm sorry, say it again. Yes, it is a process. Yes, but I would, I would say yes, but we have to get to that point where we start believing these same promises in the same way we believe I'll give you eternal life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Which is, the, which is the importance of being able to stay in the Word and yeah. know what the Word is so that you can claim the, the daily renewing of your minds. Absolutely. Exactly. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so your worldly definition of contentment is having enough of whatever it is that makes us content. Yes. We think we, we've got it. We're okay. Mm -hmm. The thing is, we have all of Jesus we're ever going to have when we accept Christ. That's, he gives us the Holy Spirit. Yep. It's, it's a done deal. But we don't feel like we do. Exactly. And that's the whole point is we actually have, like you just said, everything we need. You just quoted 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine nature has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. We already have it all. The problem is we don't really believe it. We don't really believe it. For example, and we don't know how far we get, but most likely it won't be till next week. When we get to that verse, as I can already tell right now, we're going to be next week. But when we get to that verse in verse 19 where it says, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Right, but his riches are way pretty good. Here's the deal, though. Here's my question for you. Have you not, on a regular basis, worried about whether or not God would supply your need? 
I don't know about you folks. The answer to that question on me is yes. So what I want to challenge you is I read these verses to you again, verses that you know. I wanted you to begin the process of believing these promises and these verses just as much as you believed that if you'll trust Jesus as your Savior, he'll give you eternal life. Believe these just as much. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse uh, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We'll get to that more next week most likely. We'll see. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if the, your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that light? Now, for those that don't know what he just said here, he's just pretty much saying when you look at stuff, what you focus on is going to affect what goes on in here. You focus on the wrong stuff, you ain't going to feel too good. You focus on Christ and you focus on his truth and you focus on his promises and his word, you're going to be fine. You're going to have the peace that passes understanding. Philippians 4, 8, you'll have the peace that passes understanding. All right, now keep going. Look, that's actually verse 7. But uh, go ahead and look at... Uh, oh, I see what you're saying. That, so that is 4.8. Very good. See, I thought you were talking peace that passes understanding. That's 7. Good for you. <laughs> look at what he says next in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Real stop here real quick i got to explain this one as well. All throughout the Bible, if you do a study on the word serve, you're going to see some things that seem contradictory. Psalm 100 verse 2 says, serve the Lord with gladness. Yet in Acts chapter 17 verse 25, it says, God's not served by human hands if he needed anything. How do we serve a God who's not served? How do we serve a God that says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve? How do we serve a God, though, that in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship or your reasonable service. Actually, though, if you do a real study, you'll find some translations will say service. Other translations will say worship. You actually go to some of the translations in Psalm 100 or verse 2. It won't say serve the Lord with gladness. It'll say worship the Lord with gladness. That's why in Romans 12, 1 and 2, some of your translations say, which is your spiritual or reasonable service. Others will say your spiritual worship. Actually, in Acts chapter 17, verse 25, some of your translations won't say God's not served by human hands. It'll say God's not worshipped by human hands. And so as you really start to look into that, you start to wrestle with, well, how do I serve a God who's not served? And, but at the same time, it also says worship. You're going to find that worship and service are the same thing. We've seen them as two separate things. Worshiping God is when we go worship God. And service is when we go do stuff for God. Actually, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. And the answer is right here in this section. It says, you can't serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And oh, by the way, all the translations use the word serve here. It's the same one as worship. It could be translated worship as well. Now, here's the answer, though. This helps us out. How do you serve money? Let's not worry about how to serve God. We don't know how to serve God just yet. You put your attention on it. What do you do? Can you serve money by saying, hey, money, I'll wash your socks. Hey, money, I'll cut your grass. No, you can't serve money that way. How do you serve money? It brings present enjoyment. 
as opposed to laying up treasures. Okay, so what you're saying then to serve money, you live your life in such a way that you act as if money will take care of you. You worship it. But you put your trust in your faith in, in the money. You may steal, you may borrow, you may work real hard, you may beg, but if you serve money, your focus is on money's taking care of you, and you live your life in such a way that you show your dependence on money. By the way, folks, that's how you serve God. You don't go do stuff for God. You live your life in such a way that you show your faith, your dependence, your trust is in God. True contentment will come when you totally live your life as a worshiper, totally dependent on God for everything. Not just salvation, but also whatever it is that's giving you the bellyache today. That's why Paul's been teaching all along, rejoice always. Hey, you got a situation, you're anxious? Bring it to the Lord. Put your focus on the Lord. Here he goes on and says right after that, Therefore, because of this, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor they reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Neither do they toil or spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those that don't know God is what he means by that, seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. All the way through, God's been saying, where's your focus supposed to be? Back on me and my promises and my truth. Don't get caught up in all that stuff. Folks, by the way, let me just tell you, you're going to struggle with this off and on throughout the rest of your life. Because just like his mercies are new every morning, your flesh gets up every morning. But you need to learn in this, I like the fact that you brought out that that word process is in there. In this process, you need to be reminded and begin to recognize when you start to feel that anxiousness, the worry, the fear, the anxiety, the anger. By the way, all those are just, they come out of the uh, sense of a lack of control. Some people, when they sense a lack of control, get angry. Others get worried or, or fearful or whatever. When you start to recognize those feelings, it should remind you, I'm not in the abiding relationship right now. And we need to then go back to the Lord. We need to go back to the Lord. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. You put your armor on. That's it. Hebrews 13, look at verses 5 and 6. Hebrews 13, verse 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be, what is that word again? Content with what you have. For he has said, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? By the way, I'm going to beg you this week to meditate on that verse and these verses. I want these verses to be ringing in your head as you go to the polls next Tuesday. 
I want you to actively do what God leads you to do as you, as you vote, but I want you to do it in an attitude of worship that says, God, <laughs> our eyes are on you. And whatever comes out of this election, I'm not going to sit up all night tonight anxious, worrying about whether or not my side won or the other guys, if they're going to win and what's going to happen to our country. God, you'll never leave me nor forsake me. You've promised that. And no matter what decisions our leadership makes, I'm going to be okay because I'm your child and you've already promised to supply all of my needs. What can man do to me? I'm going to be involved. I'm going to vote. I'm going to pray that we get your mercy and your grace. But honestly, I'm not going to get worried about it because you've got me. You've got me. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And I love verse four. When Christ, how is Christ described here in verse four? Who is your life appears. Then you also will appear with him in glory. Folks. We've got to get to that point where just like we don't worry about our eternal salvation because that God made a promise and we believe him. We believe him about every other promise as well, because Christ is my life. And when I really get to that place where I believe that he is all that I need, I'm content. Oh, by the way, those of you that struggle with temptations, you're going to find the struggle will become easier. Temptation will still come, but the battle against the temptation will be easier. The victory will be quicker when you understand Jesus is all I really need and my relationship with him is enough. Look, if you, if you have been feeding dogs steak and then you put a bowl of dog food in front of them, what are they going to do? They're not even going to look at it because they've been having steak. No, thanks. I'm going to stick with this is way far better. The problem with why we think that the dog food out there is so good is because many of us have not really ever begun to really understand what it means to have Christ as our life. The daily worship, the daily understanding of reading his word and spending time with him in prayer, letting him speak to you, the abiding fellowship. And folks, when you do, you begin to realize the other stuff doesn't look as good as it used to. Guess what? I think we might get further than I thought we would. Go back to Philippians chapter 4. Paul does thank them, though, for their gift in verses 15 through 18. And in doing so, he also brings out the value to those who do give financially to the things of God. Look at what he says here in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift. I'm not asking you or talking about money and thanking you for your gift because I'm seeking the gift. But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, I have never seen this in this way before until I was digging into this passage to prepare for tonight. We think we get credit for giving the gift, and we do. God, you do know God's keeping a record of your faithfulness, your obedience when you do the things he asks you to do. You do understand that, right? We talked a few weeks ago about the judgment seat of Christ and we'll be rewarded for what we've done after salvation, whether good or worthless. We think we get credit when we give the gift and God says, hey, that, uh, that's a point, if you will, or a reward. 
But I come to realize it's far deeper than that. Look at what he says again. I'm seeking the fruit that increases to your credit. In other words, all that is accomplished for the kingdom through who and what we give to gets credited in some way to the giver's account. In other words, we look at a man like Billy Graham and we think, boy, has he got a lot of reward in heaven. All the hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions, that have come to faith through the preaching of Billy Graham. And we look at Billy Graham and we think, every time someone walks the aisle, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Boy, Billy, I don't want to live next door to Billy. His house is going to be so big. You know what I'm, We have that kind of a thought, don't we? Do you not realize, though, that the Bible is showing you that everyone that supported Billy Graham's ministry and gave to the Billy Graham ministry, every time someone walks down that aisle, in their account, it goes cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. When we think of, we think we get credit for just giving the gift, but the Bible says the gift is just the seed. I'm going to take a second here and talk about this for a second. We look at money as the harvest. We look at money as what we hope to collect as the harvest. God looks at money as the seed. Do you understand what I'm saying? He sees money as just the seed to go out and accomplish. That's why he's saying, look, I'm not thanking you because I'm seeking the gift. No, I'm seeking all the stuff that's going to be accomplished because of your gift that's going to be increased to your account. God's going to take care of you. And by the way, the old Jim couldn't do this, but I can. That's a $10 bill. <laughs> My son's sitting over there going, why didn't he give it to me? Because he's, <laughs> hey, he's sitting in the splash zone. You can keep it, man. I'm doing this for a reason. I used to worry about whether or not I was going to have enough left whenever I gave anything. And God's been showing me, whenever you worry about how much is left for you, you're really showing how much you trust me. And the second I start thinking I have to help God by being a good steward, get rid of that definition. Or just start, stop using that term, guys, until you know what it really means. Because we think being a good steward means being cheap. That's what we do. A steward is only a good steward if they do what the master said to do with what he said. And that's all. Not if they got a good deal for the master. Now, if the master had a limited bank account and you got him a good deal, that's one thing. But your heavenly father has no limited bank account. Just do what he says to do. Trust him. Give what he says to give. You know, Jim, I also see something else in here. It's kind of like a... When a parent sees a child growing and they've gone through whatever the situation, whether it's a temptation, whether it's a trial... A, testing or, or a, a joyous event mm -hmm. and they respond in such a way that they that the parent can rejoice because they see that this child has now learned a deeper appreciation they've grown they've matured they've they've come closer to their heavenly father and that brings you even greater joy oh, yeah. than 
whatever may be going on. Yeah. And, and, I, and I see that Paul is looking at them like that more so. And you know, honestly, hang on to that because you're about to see as some other scriptures. He's going to refer to this group of people and their generosity here actually in another passage of scripture. He's going to come back and talk about them and we're going to see how he talks about them and you're going to see it in that same way. But what I want to do real quick is walk you through a couple of passages, maybe three, to show this attitude that God has said all along, that he's focusing on the fruit that is increased by our generosity. Go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 and verses 12 through 14. Titus chapter 3 verses 12 through 14. Paul says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Did you catch that? See that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. What's he saying to him? He said, hey, Paul's, by the way, like a traffic controller. Has anybody notice he's a traffic controller? He's sending people here and there and telling people to stay a little while. Then I want you to come on over. And he's he's kind of controlling all this stuff. But he says to that church there, uh, he says, hey, make sure they're taken care of. Make sure you bless them. Make sure they're all taken care of. They don't lack anything. Go to John chapter four. John chapter four, verses 36 through 37. This is along the lines of uh, of just sowing the seed, not just financially, but of the gospel. John chapter 4, verses 36 through 37. Jesus said, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you didn't labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. As he's talking about how he's sending them out to go preach the good news of the kingdom. By the way, he says, when they come to Christ, don't think it was just because of you. There's others who have already been laboring for years, prophets and their word and all this stuff. You just happen to be there when they came to Christ. They're going to be rewarded just as much as you. But when we have the evangelists come and share how to evangelize, we bring in the guys who are the harvesters and they're gifted by God to harvest and they get it there and they make you feel bad because you're not harvesting. And when we don't see a harvest, we stop scattering seed. Folks, don't worry about whether or not they believe you will be rewarded for every time you share the gospel. Not every time someone comes to faith, you'll be rewarded for every time you share the gospel. Because that's what we've been called to do, to go be his witnesses. If they respond or don't, don't let that be an issue to you. Scatter the seed. Folks, I, I don't know about you, but the more I really look at what the Bible teaches about this future reward for faithfulness here on the earth, I think every one of us are going to be mind blown by how much God actually did through our lives. I think we're going to be blown away. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 
For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. And I'm going to change the word member to part, so you'll understand it, because I can't stand the word member. when <laughs> It brings too many bad memories. All right, and, and, the, and the parts do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are all one body in Christ, and individually parts one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If it's prophecy in proportion to your faith, in, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Do you see that? Some people have been given the spiritual gift to make money. Why have they been given the spiritual gift to make money? To give money. And actually, you'll find who those people really are. They're not the ones that go, oh, okay. No, they love doing it. It's a joy. They, it's just, they get fired up about it because that's how they've been wired by God. I never say, oh man, I get to preach. I can't wait to go preach. At the same time, people that have been given this gift, they just love to give. It's a part of how he does what he does. One more passage. Go to Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Because some of you say, well, I'm not a millionaire, so I guess I wasn't given that gift. This may surprise you. Look at Luke chapter 8, verses 1, 2, and 3. Before you read it, don't read it. How did Jesus and his disciples make any money? In the three years that they traveled, where did they get their income from? Where did their money come from? A fish's mouth? That was to pay for only one thing. Huh? Oh, you read ahead. Luke 8. You got it. That's a, you know it. Where it is. Good for you. Exactly. Luke, chap, Luke chapter 8. A lot of you may not know that. I'm glad you read your Bible, though. That's awesome. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Didn't know that, did you? Ladies who went around were making sure that there was money to take care of whatever needed to be taken care of. God used the people we wouldn't even expect. And Jesus told the disciples not to take anything. He told them not to bring anything. It'll get taken care of. It'll get taken care of. He uses people wherever he goes. That's why whenever I travel, the, the pastors are sad because there's so many traveling guys out there have a set fee. And they won't come unless they can be promised the next amount of dollars. Otherwise, it's not worth their time. And the pastors say, what are your fees? I said, I don't have any. No, no, you, you, you got to charge. No, I don't. I literally, I want to come. And if you don't give me any money, I'll still come. If you want to take a love offering, great. If you want to cover a hotel or mileage or a rental car, that's fine. I don't worry about that stuff. I'll take care of it all. You just set, set the date and I'll come. Why? Because I believe God will take care of it. And he does and he has. Folks, we're in our 10th year and we haven't lacked a thing and never will. The minute I start thinking I need to start helping God by cutting here and skimping there. Too many churches right now are going through that whole process of, well, we're going to have to cut here. We're going to have to cut there. Is it something God told you to do? But we don't have the money. That's not the question I asked you. Is it something God told you to do? Do it. And you watch how he comes through. All right, Jim, what if I give so much that I don't have enough left for me? 
I mean, you're telling me to just give and to be generous and to not see my money as the harvest, but see my money as the seed. And I'm to scatter the seed. What if I give so much I don't have enough to take care of myself? What does he say again in verse 19? And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now I've got to stop you. A whole bunch of barrels of oil. Yes, a whole bunch of barrels of oil. Yes. Now, here's the thing, though. Listen up to what I'm saying. The, the passage that we love to quote, and my God shall supply all of your needs in accordance with his riches. What is the context? Who was it written to? The believers in Philippi who had been generous in giving, and you're about to see, giving out of their poverty. Folks, we love to quote, my God supply all your needs. Who was it written to? It was written to Christians who had been generous in financial support of the ministry. Go with me real quick to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me show you how Paul talks about this group of people when he wrote to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of where? Macedonia. Macedonia. Where's Philippi? Macedonia, for in a test, severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus, that is, he had started so he should complete among you this act of grace. He's talking to the church in Corinth there about giving. But as you excel in everything, in faith and in speech and in knowledge and all earnestness and all, and all our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also, meaning giving. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment that this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I don't mean that others should be eased and that you burdened, but that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. By the way, does he, where's he quoting from where it says, as it is written, whoever gathered much had none left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. Does anybody know where he's quoting from? <laughs> Exodus, where they're, where they're collecting what? Manna. They're collecting the manna. Some were good at it, some weren't as good at it, and the ones who were really good at collecting it didn't have any excess. The ones who were kind of bad at it, they didn't lack a thing. And here's what God's saying is, is look, the attitude here is just the attitude of your heart, not how much you have or how much you don't have. Don't look at that, just what is God telling me to give? And out of their own accord, out of their poverty, they became generous in giving. So Paul is writing to the generous church in Philippi there in Macedonia, saying to them, man, I mean, like you're saying, I'm seeing way more than the fact that you gave money. I'm seeing a maturity here 
a growth in your walk with the Lord that shows well beyond your years because you weren't worried about what you had left. You just gave as the Lord told you to give. And oh, my God shall supply your needs according to his riches. Is God going to bless those who are stingy? Well, well, you're quoting where we're going next. You're just you're just right on right on right on the schedule here. Look at chapter nine. Look at what he says in chapter nine. Look at Second Corinthians nine, verses uh, six and following. He says, "The point is this: whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully." Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Got to stop. What has he just made a promise? If you give, he will do what? He'll multiply the seed. In other words, if you're a generous person and you give to things of God, he is actually going to give you more so that you can keep giving more. And he's also promised, like we just saw in Philippians chapter 4, verse 17, that he's also going to be increasing your righteousness, your reward in heaven. It's going to be multiplying like you wouldn't believe. Folks, the ones who really, really, really are content, I'm going to say it, are givers. Plain and simple. We're not measuring who gives more than who gives. All the, the ones who are truly, truly content Give to things of God wherever God tells them to because they aren't worried about what about what's going to be left over for me. They believe God will do what he said he would do and he'll increase the seed and they're going to be rewarded. And God, Paul says, I'm not seeking the gift. I'm seeking what's the fruit that's going to be increased to your account. Well, Keep reading. Go ahead. Well, no, he says, now may he who supplies the seed. Oh, God. Anything we get comes from him. It doesn't it, it, and that's given from us. It, it, you remind me of something that it was. Uh, I heard this story years ago. We've already bragged on Billy Graham. Now I'm going to tell you a funny story about Billy Graham. Uh, I heard this story years ago that he was sitting in a church service and uh, he was sitting next to his wife, Ruth, and the offering plate went by and he put money in the offering plate. And then he realized as he was dropping the money that he actually put in a 10 when he was planning to put in a five. And so he reached back to grab that 10 because he wasn't intending on putting a 10 in there. And as he reached back, his wife slapped his hand. And she goes, what are you doing? And he, this is going on in the pew. He, he goes, I put in a 10 by accident. I meant to put in a five. And Ruth, quickly as anything, and if you know anything about Ruth, she had just such a gift of wisdom in this way. She said, don't worry, honey, that 10's a five in God's eyes now. <laughs> Isn't that true? Absolutely. <laughs> and, that other, and the other five goes to Ruth's <laughs> It might be. It might be. Verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. 
you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way with which through us will produce thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God by their approval of this service. They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Folks, back in Philippians chapter four, and we're going to wrap up the book tonight. We'll start in Colossians next week. After thanking them for their financial gift and promising them that God would meet all their needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, why does Paul end it with, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Any idea? Where does it all come from? It all comes from him anyway. Paul even said it earlier in Corinthians. He said, what do you have that wasn't already given to you? Exactly. I, I, I shared this years ago. I heard a story about this one father who took his kids to a high school football game. And uh, he told his, his kid, said, I'd like some Reese's Pieces. And so the father reached into his wallet and gave the kid money to go buy Reese's Pieces at the snack bar. The kid comes back and sits there at the, in the stands and the dad says, can I have a couple of Reese's Pieces? And the kid goes, no, they're mine. He said the thought went through his mind as a dad. Three things went through his mind just like this. The first one was, those are mine. I paid for those with my money. That wasn't your money. That was my money that bought those. Another thing that went through his head was, I'm bigger than you. If I want to take those, I can just take them and you couldn't stop me. And the third thought was, I've got a $100 bill in my pocket. If I wanted Reese's Pieces, I could go to the snack bar and buy all of them and rain them on top of your head if I wanted to. And he said, then God showed him his attitude when God says, I gave you this, would you give? God says, anything that I'm asking you to give, I already gave it to you. It's not really yours. And on top of that, I'm bigger than you. I can take it if I want to. And I don't need yours. I got enough that I could just rain it all on top of you if I wanted to. And folks, the reason why he says to God be the glory forever and ever, it's all tied back to when we really, well, let's wrap up by looking at it this way. What extravagance did God go through to make you a part of his family? to take care of your need, the death of his son. Let me say that again. What extravagance, what generosity, what level did he go through to take care of your need, your greatest need? Oh, by the way, when he did it, were you worthy? Were you being good? You were his enemy, you were powerless, you were a sinner. And when you didn't even know him nor like him, he went to that level to meet your need. How much more, now that we've been reconciled, will God be for us? Amen. So let's stop acting like God won't take care of us and be generous. It will be the way you demonstrate your contentment. Oh, one other thing about that $10 bill that I gave you. 
I'm not asking for it back because I want you to keep it. I really do. And if you're not comfortable with it, God will tell you what you're supposed to do with it. But here's the deal. <coughs> Becky and I also have an agreement in our marriage. We're not allowed to spend more than $10 <laughs> without checking with the other one. It's something God taught us a long time ago. It keeps me from coming home and saying, I just bought a set of golf clubs. And she'll say, I just bought a dress. We're in trouble. You know? <laughs> and so we have set it up a long time ago that we talk to each other. If it's more than 10 bucks, we call each other and say, hey, I'm about to spend such and so. If you're going to the grocery store, we know you're going to spend more than 10 bucks or whatever. But if we're going to do something that's outside what we normally budget, we stay in communication. So I didn't break any rules. Becky didn't know I was going to do that, but it's $10. It didn't go over $10. But I say that for this reason as well. God wants you as a couple to be generous as a couple. He doesn't want one spouse who might be there more than the other spouse to just start giving it away and freaking the other spouse out. Do you understand? God does not want you to be generous and extravagant to the detriment of your marriage. But this would be a great way for the two of you to get closer as you begin to seek God together on things of giving. You're giving to your churches, to ministries of God or whatever. Begin to pray together. What do you think God, number has God put in your head? And you begin to work together. So as God does it in your heart, make sure that it's not going to tear your marriage up in the process. But folks... Is Jesus all you need? Has he promised he'd take care of everything you got? Let's believe it just like we believe that we're going to go to heaven when we die. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the fact that we have that confidence. You confirm it in our hearts through your spirit that we're your children. And we don't worry about whether or not we're going to heaven when we die. We look forward to it, believing, because we know you've made a promise and we believe you. Yet for some reason, we've never really learned how to believe the other promises in the same way. But Lord, that's your spirit's work. And that's your work as you live within us, to take us down that journey of believing it. You use people like myself preach and teach the word, but ultimately it's, it gets down to your spirit speaking to our heart, your word speaking truth, and whether we believe it. Lord, my prayer for myself, for my wife, for my kids, for the folks that are listening here in this room and are listening online. Lord, for the, your children all around the world, that we would believe every promise of yours just as much as we believe that you've got our eternity, eternity secure. And Lord, I know that it'll manifest itself in generosity and peace and contentment. And the world in these last days needs to see it when the church is losing its saltiness. Father, if the church is going to become less and less salty, may it not be because of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.